with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Later on in the show, we'll have Sharon Hurd and a discussion she had with Catherine and Faye from the Prince George Hospice Society. But to start today's program, this is Tuesday morning's Front Burner from CBC News. Hello, I'm Josh Block. Today on Front Burner. For over 60 days, protesters have gone out on the streets of Portland, Oregon, to fight against anti-black racism and police violence. They started after George Floyd was killed by police in Minneapolis. And night after night, they continued. And then, in late June, federal agents were deployed to the city. Tonight, Portland thrown into chaos. Months of tensions boiling over as the White House deploys federal agents against protesters. Since then, the protests have ramped up again. And so has the violence. So far, more than 60 protesters have been arrested or detained. There are nightly clashes with federal agents, and more agents are on their way. Today, I'm talking to Tuck Woodstock, an independent journalist who has spent the majority of the last 60-plus nights out covering the protests. This is Frumper. Hello, Tuck. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So it looks to me like the last few nights, the last while, have, have played themselves out in a similar fashion in Portland, where protesters are converging on the federal courthouse until federal law enforcement tried to disperse the crowd. You are right in there, you know, amongst the protesters. From your side of the fence, can you describe how this is playing out? Yeah, absolutely. So... There is this fence now, and so every day protesters are gathering, I should say every night, because it starts at 9 or 10 p.m., right. protesters are gathering uh, in front of this fence and doing things like, uh, you know, pushing against the fence so that it rattles or throwing plastic water bottles over the fence or uh, sometimes throwing fireworks over the fence and using these tactics that are, you know, escalating the situation, but without, I would say, like, physical harm to anyone because the the federal troops at that point are all inside the building. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're throwing these things over the fence in like this empty area. Sometimes they'll try to breach the fence and go over it and, you know, eventually gets to the point where, you know, somehow federal agents decide, okay, this is enough and typically they'll come out and use tear gas. And sometimes they'll use uh, crowd control munitions as well. And then from there, it's the rest of the night is just rolling waves of tear gas and rolling waves of crowd control munitions from the uh, federal agents and then uh, sort of defense tactics by, uh, you know, local protesters. So that would be, you know, having shields up and umbrellas up and uh, trying to, like, grab the tear gas canisters and throw them back over the fence, things like that. You know, this has been going on for more than 60 consecutive nights now, and you have these protesters going up against tear gas and crowd control munition. And after almost two months of this, it seems like the protesters with their you know, shields and umbrellas have become pretty savvy. Absolutely. It, it is funny because a few weeks ago, even as recently as you know, a week and a half ago, there were maybe one or two leaf blowers out there. And now there's dozens of leaf blowers out there that's been uh, used so heavily that, in fact, the federal agents now have their own leaf blowers. And there is a battle of the leaf blowers to see who can blow the gas in what direction. 
And of course, the wind also plays an element in this too. So it's pretty wild to watch, honestly. But yes, the, these protesters have been out there for two months and were, you know, having these kind of interactions with the Portland Police Department before they were having these interactions with the federal agents. And so in the last two months, it, it's really um, allowed these protesters to have time to uh, coordinate and practice their tactics almost so that uh, by the time it escalated to where it is right now, we have these uh, shield lines that are like very coordinated and we have, uh, you know, different blocks of protesters that are very coordinated because some of them have been out there for two months. Others have only been out there for a few days, but uh, it's, it's really a mix. And uh, it's been really interesting. Even the folks who have only been out there for a week, like the, the mom block, which I'm sure people have heard about if they've heard about these protests, those moms in just a week went from showing up in just yellow t-shirts to showing up in yellow t-shirts, a helmet, goggles, a gas mask, and a shield. So everyone's leveling up pretty quickly. And just describe what is that mom block. I mean, I've seen these images of, of, I guess, what is moms locked arm in arm right on the front lines. Right. So I want to be really clear that uh, mothers have always been a key part of this protest. And uh, Black and Indigenous mothers particularly have been coming out to the protest since day one and have been there throughout 60 days. But within the last couple of weeks, this group of predominantly white mothers have banded together and created this thing called Wall of Moms, in which they dressed in matching outfits and they would they would link arms and go to the front lines of the protest and chant things like "Feds stay clear, the moms are here." We need to stand up. I'm 60 years old. I probably shouldn't be here in public, but this is beyond acceptable. And it's sort of weaponizing this concept of, of white women and white mothers as being like inherently more fragile or like less deserving of violence or less threatening. Because when people look at, uh, you know, black bloc uh, protesters, some of them say like, oh, these people, you know, they're, they're violent and they're like asking for it and they deserve to be, you know, tear gassed and shot at, which, you know, we can have that discussion separately. Uh, but these moms went out to say like, look, we are not doing anything violent we are not threatening anyone we're just standing here and we're also getting tear gas so there's this you know discussion around this of to what extent is this also racism <laughs> to see these mm. moms these white moms as inherently less uh deserving of violence but also i'm very aware that these mothers are doing that on purpose right are using this like as a tactic and are are themselves trying to take cues from from black leaders and are not trying to uh spotlight their whiteness over over black voices that have been at these protests since day one a lot of the the images that we're seeing from the protests are coming from the front lines. It is the, the the clashes between protesters and law enforcement. But can you describe a little bit what's happening behind the front lines? The people that the protesters that are there but are not clashing with police. Yeah, that's a great question. That's also changed over the last couple of weeks from where it was. But for the first six weeks of these protests. The majority of the time was spent uh, sitting around in the park, eating snacks, talking, dancing, listening to music. And now a lot of that is still happening. And so if you back up even just half a block off of the front lines, you'll find a bunch of drummers and percussionists uh, playing a beat. And maybe there'll be a dance party next to that. Or there will be, you know, someone singing and chanting next to that. And you'll find, you know, mutual aid groups handing out food and uh, protective equipment and first aid equipment and water. Uh, across the street from the federal courthouse is Riot Ribs, which is a 24-7 uh, donation-based uh, outdoor kitchen. And so mm -hmm. protesters, homeless folks, anyone else can line up for uh, free food from Riot Ribs at any time. 
it's important to remember this is happening during a pandemic. So often this is the only uh, social event that people have gone to in months. And so, yes, there is there is skirmishes on the front lines, but there's also just a lot of socializing and honestly a lot of joy in this level of community support and engagement and the amount of people who are coming together for a common goal and like really showing up for each other. I want to ask you more about how this all began. Back in May, there was about 10,000 people that took to the streets after George Floyd was killed by Minneapolis police. How did the Portland police handle those crowds back then? Yeah, <laughs> it's funny because they handled them in a very similar way to what federal agents were doing for the first few weeks that they were there. Just in the last few days, I finally, as a reporter, am to the point where I will say that the federal agents are using more force uh, and are significantly more violent and dangerous than the Portland Police Department. But for the uh -huh. first three weeks that the federal agents were there, I would not have said that because they were using almost identical tactics. Portland Police was also using tear gas as well as pepper spray. They were using crowd control munitions. I mean, even really specific tactics like Portland Police was also hiding all identifying information from the officers' uniforms, much like the federal agents are doing. Portland Police was calling for unlawful assemblies and then bull rushing crowds out of the area like uh, federal agents are doing. And so it's, it was very, very, very similar tactics. And it's only in the last week or so that the federal agents, I think, have escalated past what Portland Police has already been doing in the last two months and before then. In recent weeks, there has been a radical movement to defund, dismantle, and dissolve our police departments. This bloodshed must end. This bloodshed will end. Today, I'm announcing a surge of federal law enforcement into American communities plagued by violent crime. I want to understand how we got to this place we are right now. I mean, after those initial protests, it looked like the number of protesters started to dwindle. But what happened? Why are we seeing this surge of protesters taking to the streets again in the last few weeks? Yeah, so what happened was that, yes, the protests did dwindle down from thousands of people to a couple hundred people coming out every night, as recently as a couple weeks ago. And what really sparked a change was not the arrival of federal agents, because federal agents arrived almost a month ago. Mm -hmm. What really sparked the change was uh, an Oregon Public Broadcasting article that broke the news that federal agents were snatching protesters off the street, uh, seemingly without cause, and driving them around in unmarked vans. What are you doing? Use your words. What are you doing? Use your words. You just violated their rights. You just violated their rights. That story, you know, to an outsider seemed terrifying and appalling and completely out of the blue. And that really drew local and national attention to what was going on downtown and led to thousands of additional Portlanders wanting to come down and, you know, stand up for their belief that these federal agents should not be in Portland or that they should not be snatching protesters off the street or they should not be using uh, violent escatory tactics. You know, the, all of these people were drawn out by this news story. But the news story is just a recounting of what was already happening, right? So, so it wasn't really that, like, federal agents changed their tactics. It was just that the word of what they had already been doing finally got out to the public. And one of the protesters that got a lot of media attention was Mark Pettibone. Tell me about uh -huh. him. Yeah, so Mark Pettibone was a protester who was walking home from a protest. It had been a relatively uneventful night. 
in terms of clashes with the police and the federal agents. But as we were walking to uh, my friend's car, a van pulled up in front of me. When federal agents rolled up in an unmarked van. I tried to flee and they tracked me down and uh, threw me into the van. So they, they uh, pulled my, my beanie over my face and held my hands over my head. And then brought him to the federal courthouse, searched him. I believe eventually released him after not finding anything uh, that could be seen as incriminating on him. But it was really just a story that counteracted the federal agent's narrative that they were really targeting specific people who they knew were, uh, you know, perpetrating crimes. Like their line was, we are watching the crowd very carefully. And then when the crowd gets smaller, we're going to go out in the crowd and we're going to pick off the people that are doing the crimes and we're going to arrest those people. But this was really demonstrating that this man, Mark, was not on federal property. It's just such a kind of a cliche image of authoritarianism. And I, I, I knew that this is kind of the logical progression of what's been going on. I just didn't expect it to hit home so directly. That is Tuesday morning's front burner from CBC News, segment one, here on 93.1 CFIS FM's After Nine. We'll have segment two in a moment. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After Nine on 93.1 CFIS FM. And now segment two of Tuesday morning's front burner from CBC News. Federal officers were ostensibly deployed to the city to protect the federal courthouse. You've been on the ground there. Is that what you're seeing? I suppose that that could be argued uh, that that is what's happening because protesters are trying to breach this fence around the courthouse. And so, you know, acting Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf has said that if federal agents pulled out of Portland, protesters would burn this building to the ground. We're not going to abdicate our mission, our responsibilities. Uh, however, whatever the local leadership here is telling us, we're going to do our job. Uh, we're going to do it professionally, uh, but we're not going to have the violent anarchists uh, who show up about the same time every night uh, and having that federal destruction to property. I think that that's a really flawed argument for two reasons. One is that before the federal agents arrived in Portland, no one was paying attention to the courthouse. And so really the, the protesters are not chanting at this fence and trying to breach the fence because they're trying to burn the courthouse down from, from anything I've understood in my 60 days of recording. Um, my understanding is that they're trying to breach the fence because they're angry about the federal officers and they're trying to demonstrate their anger at the federal officer's presence by messing this fence. Like the fence is an escalatory uh, thing by the federal agents. And that was shown a month ago when Portland police did exactly the same thing and put a fence up around their police headquarters and things just escalated because protesters had a target of their frustration, which became, you know, yelling at this fence, shaking this fence. This is our street. That's our fence. It's on our property. Take it down and leave our town. But a month ago, we were having this exact same standoff across the street at the Portland police headquarters. And once the Portland police took down that fence um, and stopped appearing every night to have skirmishes with protesters, uh, focus shifted entirely away from that police headquarters. No one has burned it to the ground. Uh, there's barely even been graffiti. So it's clearly uh, the protesters are focusing on wherever uh, law enforcement is stationed rather than on destroying specific buildings. And and federal officials have internally acknowledged that that they have, you know, their presence has contributed to the escalation of the conflict between protesters and law enforcement. 
Yes, absolutely. I understand there's been some criticism of the protests as well, that, you know, recently the president of the Portland NAACP, E.D. Mondanay, accused the protests of being a, quote, white spectacle, and that it has detracted from the aims of the Black Lives Matter movement. In your piece, you speak about the woman who's being described as naked Athena, the protester who's had this unclothed confrontation. She was photographed doing yoga poses. That is definitely the tipping point for me. I mean, my great great uncle was lynched for just speaking to a white woman. I think that we need to remember that this is exactly why black men were lynched in America and what a slap in the face it is for us. Can you tell me a bit more about those concerns? Yeah, absolutely. So these protests started as a Black Lives Matter movement, and if someone went down to the protests, they would see that the protests were much more racially diverse than Portland as a whole. Portland is only... 6% African-American and 76% white. And these protests were were much more diversified than that. And so uh, you were seeing like a lot of focus on Black Lives Matter topics. All of the people on the bullhorns were black. And focus was on, you know, defunding Portland police, which disproportionately targets black and indigenous Portlanders. Now the headlines are showing things like the Wall of Moms, which is, you know, primarily white women. They're showing white protesters getting shot in the face. They're showing white protesters getting tear gassed. Um, a lot of the media focus is on, you know, Trump and these federal agents versus the city of Portland. The mayor says President Trump sent in federal officers to fire up his banks during an election season, a point echoed by Governor Kate Brown. It's all about scoring political points. And of course, a photo opportunity. Mr. President, federal agencies should never be used as your own personal army. And that Black Lives Matter message is getting lost. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that on the ground that message has been lost. Because on the ground, I'm still seeing uh, almost entirely black folks on the bullhorn. I'm still seeing signs about Black Lives Matter. I'm still hearing chants for George Floyd, for Breonna Taylor, for black Portlanders who have been killed. And so I don't think the protesters on the ground are losing the threat of Black Lives Matter. I think it's the media that is focusing on white people involved and like white perspectives of these protests uh, that's really causing that issue. I, I wonder, you know, you've been covering these protests for for months now, and uh, you've described the tear gas, the flashbangs, the fireworks that are there. I mean, what's it like to be in the middle of these protests. It's one thing for us to watch these videos from afar, but I imagine it's quite disorienting at times to be to right in the midst of it. Absolutely. Uh, what's sort of been horrifying is how the journalists and the protesters on the ground have adjusted to experiencing this because I'm at the point where, you know, I go out there with a respirator and goggles and helmet and I'm just standing in a cloud of tear gas checking my tweets. Uh, because like it is is just so common to me now that I don't even move away from it. Uh, I just stand there and you know look at my phone. Uh, when flashbangs go off or when fireworks go off, I don't jump or react in any way because I am so used to it. But definitely the other day, I was standing uh, on the front lines reporting and I saw three people around me get hit with flashbangs, which is not how flashbangs are intended to be used. They're not ammunition. But uh, people on either side of me were hit directly with flashbangs. And, 
it's one of those things where, you know, you turn and look and you're glad that it didn't hit you specifically, but you know when you're out there that there's a very real chance that at any moment you'll be hit with pepper balls, you'll be hit with flashbangs, uh, you'll be tear gassed, and you just sort of accept that risk and get used to it happening all around you. I mean, after two months of protests, it doesn't seem like there is an end in sight. And now we're seeing similar protests, you know, sparked in other cities, including in you know, major protests in Seattle. What's your prediction about where this is all heading? I have absolutely no idea, because two weeks ago, uh, before that Oregon Public Broadcasting story broke about the federal agents snatching people into unmarked vans, I really mm-hmm. thought that the protests were going to die out uh, in a, a matter of weeks because the crowd was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And now every day is the new biggest day. It's gotten to the point where I am now covering the protest less. I started covering the protest because there were only a couple of journalists on the ground getting all of the information out. And I felt that it was important that people knew what was going on. And now I'm on the front lines and there are dozens and dozens of press all around me. I can't even get to the fence because there are so many people in front of me. When the tear gas comes in, there are so many press and protesters that it's hard to even move away from the tear gas because the crowd is dense. And when it gets to that point, it's hard to see like what's going to happen from there because it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger every single day. And so I really do not have a prediction of what's going to happen now because all of my previous predictions have been have been wrong. So, I, I mean, this could go on until the election, for all I know. Well, we will continue to watch closely. Thank you so much, Tuck, for speaking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Before I let you go today, an update on a story that we brought you last week. The Major League Baseball season just started, but already two games have been called off because of a coronavirus outbreak within the Miami Marlins. According to ESPN, the team has at least 14 positive cases. Their home opener against Baltimore scheduled for last night was canceled, as well as a New York Yankees game. The Yankees would have been in the same clubhouse as the Marlins used last week. That's all for today. I'm Josh Block. Thanks for listening to Front Burner. On 93.1 CFIS FM, that was Tuesday morning's Front Burner from CBC News. You can also catch Front Burner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Stick around. After 9 returns in a moment with Sharon Hurd and a couple of ladies from the Prince George Hospice Society. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And now Sharon Hurd and a discussion she had with Catherine and Faye from the Prince George Hospice Society, uh, mostly talking about their dream home lottery. We're going to have an early bird draw this Friday. Oh. Our first early bird will be Friday at 6 o'clock. And the first early bird prize is 50 50 50 tickets. Oh, oh that's, wow. that's a good deal. Yeah, it is a really good deal. Yeah. Can you still get a ticket? Pardon? Can you still? The cost of the ticket is $25. Mm hmm. And um, there's the location, it's the Solar Center, which is next door to Hospice House. Okay. Where people can buy their tickets at the Dream Home 
Lottery House, or they can go online as well. Oh, good. That's how I got mine. I went online. That's a good idea. Okay, and so 50-50, 50 tickets sold at $25 a ticket. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So the early bird draw will be 50 of the 50-50 tickets. Very nice. So that's quite a wonderful early bird draw. You know, in this time of year when people are having trouble because of the COVID and they're, yeah. they're living on, um, on a different kind of income, um, maybe people take a chance and uh, yeah. spend $25 to make, who knows, half of, uh, well, yeah. 50 times uh, it 25. Could be 150. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And yeah. Um, we're, we're very glad to uh, have this early bird. Mm-hmm. And since you were speaking of COVID, yeah, um, we wanted to, to let you know and all of the people that are listening that our hospice grief programs are continuing during this time. Good. We have Zoom grief groups once a week where people can come for and be part of it yeah. for however long they need to be. We're doing emotional phone support over the phone mm-hmm. um, to help out people. Also, we have facilitators that are able to do Zoom or emotional phone support to children and teens as well. Mm-hmm. And we're uh, thinking of new ways of being able to connect virtually or by phone for our groups in the fall. That's, so yeah. the, the grief support has continued since the COVID began, um, we're really pleased that the volunteers have stepped forward and are able to help us out in this way. And, and you know, it's not just that um, the people who have lost their loved ones through COVID or just through um, passing on, but with all the news that's on, I really do think a lot of us are feeling very sad. Because yes. you see how many people have died in, in the States and across the world. And mm-hmm. it's just, it's really hard to t- kind of take it in. It's like the word infinity. Like, how do you figure out what infinity is? Because it's never ending. And and right now, it in my mind, it feels the same. But when is it ever going to end? And how many yes. people are going to die? And so uh, I think that people could call you um, just the support if their feelings overwhelmed by the if amount they're feeling overwhelmed and very isolated and I'm going to let Faye talk a little bit on uh, the, the people that are feeling the isolation and isolation and the grieving and um, how that's compounded and the struggles that they have but Catherine before you go uh-huh. tell me about the Zoom I'm not a computer person and and so do they have to phone a special number to get on the Zoom? You know, when they when we register them, uh, we get their phone number and their email address, and then we send the link, the Zoom link, to them uh-huh. so that they all come on at the same time, Sharon. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. you, so you can have a meeting with that. I haven't yeah. done one of those. We can I've, meet virtually. Yeah. Um, you know, and sometimes we've had a couple of facilitators meet with as many as five people. And so is it like a chat? 
you know, that I've never been on a chat line either. And so uh, there's not a, you're, you don't have to have a camera or anything to do a Zoom. Actually, yes, you do, Sharon. It's Faye. Hi. Um, it's, it's very similar to Skype oh, or, okay. um, or FaceTime yeah. in that it's, uh, to download it on your computer, it's free. Just mm-hmm. go to zoom.ca. Um, and then, um, you do need an email address. And when, when you become a part of a Zoom group, we email you a Zoom invitation every week. And then all you have to do is just click on the link in your email and you're put right into the meeting and it's face to face with the whole group. Okay. Um, the board of directors of the CFIS or Prince George Community Radio Society does that. But I'm on dial-up where I live, and so they give me a phone number where I can phone in and participate. Yeah, and so, um, you know, there may be some people in this, because I'm 81 now, so I'm I'm out in the middle of nowhere, and there may be people who are living the same as me that need to be able to hook into that. Yeah. So that might be something that you want to um, offer along with the the hookup uh, um, by the computer. Yeah, that will be some, that will be something we'll be incorporating right away. That's yeah. a great idea. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It's only because I'm old and isolated. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, now, um, and so now, um, Faye, what what is your part in? role in all of this? Well, I'm the new grief support coordinator here at the hospice house. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm just um, so honored to be here. Mm -hmm. And what that means for me is being able to um, help uh, guests and families through the time of the transition of passing away of their loved ones. Mm-hmm. And um, and so part of what we're starting here at Hospice House this fall is that we have this beautiful new tent mm-hmm. in the backyard that we are able to offer to families of the guests at the house mm-hmm. um, so that they can come and social distance but all be together uh-huh. where... Uh, loved ones who come in the house now, only one person could be in the room at a time. Yes. We're outside in this beautiful new tent. We're able to offer that uh, to our guests. We're also able to offer the tent as uh, for celebration of life services oh. for small gatherings. Uh-huh. Um, um, and um, uh, we're very excited about that. We're looking at offering some honoring days as well where we uh family members can uh, can um put up a table for loved ones that have been lost and um face-to-face can happen uh social distance yes but face-to-face can happen for those people to and be allowed to grieve that way you know that's a wonderful idea because when i was working at phoenix house um i there was either five or seven of our of the staff that had lost um, a child, like a, an adult child, and you could tell when that um, anniversary was coming up, because they would start to withdraw, and the idea of having um, a ceremony or a remembrance of uh, your your child 
and bringing the family together for that, even on their birthdays or something like that, would be a wonderful idea. Yeah, there is. We're we're looking at forward to doing that um, uh, small groups at a time. Yeah, we have to do the COVID restrictions, of course. But, yeah. but we're just so aware that people are just not able to grieve together communally mm-hmm. um, and um, over condolences over the phone sometimes are so lovely sometimes it's just nice to see people in their faces you know and and um, and um, love on people that way and look at each other's eyes you know yeah. and and uh, express your feeling to one another and even if you can't hug you yeah. at least, I mean, there's such an energy in a room when people are in it, and especially when it's um, it got a, a, a sort of a, a one goal of, of remembering that person. I don't think people understand how much energy there is in that. And uh, I, I think I, I really like this idea, Faye. I think this is just a great idea. You could have a little um, lunch and, and some tea or or uh, iced tea or something. This is wonderful. Yeah, we're really excited about using this beautiful, wonderful new tent <laughs> that we have mm-hmm. in that way. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I, yeah. I think it's wonderful. Now, If anyone has any more questions about that, Sharon, mm-hmm. um, they can call the hospice, the Solace Center mm-hmm. and the hospice house, and more information will be given to them um, and more detailed information as well. Okay, so yeah. the numbers to call are two five zero yep five six three and um and then they can get any inter- information and and set up a time and um yep, they yeah can set up a time and they can ask for faith mm-hmm. is it um, Faye or faith faith f a y okay. Yeah, I'm I'm having a little problems with my hearing. <laughs> no, that's well, not Absolutely no problem. <laughs> Good. I mean, I, we're so happy that you're even able to do this with us over the phone. Oh, it's very important to us. We yes, really, um, you know, Judy's husband was at the hospice, was he not? Yes, yes. it was. That yeah. was in 206. Yeah, and so, and I volunteered there, and I kind of think I want to get back at it, or at least give you some of the ideas what it's like to be 81 and wondering. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, now, have you replaced somebody, Faye? Um, yes, Denise Torgerson has moved on to community programs here at the hospice house. Okay. And, um, and um, yes, I've been uh, uh, working with her, and she's uh, been a wonderful mentor and um, just such an awesome, well, we all know how awesome she is. Yeah, she is. She's just <laughs> yeah. a, one of the kindest people I've ever met. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And so um, it, the, uh, the hospice is run mostly on volunteers. Now, do you have someone that volunteers with you, Faye and, and Catherine, in the work that you do? Uh, right now, with the COVID restrictions, we do not have any volunteers in the house. Yeah. But our facilitators uh, and grief support volunteers, are all, those people are all volunteers that are doing 
the grief program yep. are all done by volunteers, Sharon. That is part one of the discussion Sharon Hurd had with Catherine and Faye from the Hospice Society here in Prince George, as recorded uh, from our Senior Moments program Tuesday afternoon. Part two of that interview coming up in a moment here on After Nine. You're listening to After Nine on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS FM. And now more from Sharon Hurd along with Catherine and Faye from the Prince George Hospice Society. Catherine, what brought you to hospice? And, and to, Because a lot of people would feel that would be a very difficult area to work in because most people that come in don't leave on their own two feet. Well, you know, I was introduced to, to hospice and started in 1998. Oh. So I'm definitely the, the dinosaur here. But <laughs> I, um, I had a girlfriend who was chose to die at home, but hospice was coming in, community volunteers were coming in, and I just got to see firsthand what wonderful, compassionate, caring volunteers hospice had, and that was my first introduction to it, and uh, here I am all these years later, um, a part of this, and even though um, sometimes people think this is a sad time, each guest that comes in lives until they die. <laughs> and there's lots of stories, there's lots of reminiscing, and the caregiver gets to become the husband or the wife or the friend and not the caregiver once their loved one uh, comes to hospice. Mm-hmm. So the relationship changes, and, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to talk and share stories and talk about life and... When the guests come in, each one of their rooms can be decorated with um, their own pictures or board games or pictures that their grandchildren have have done for the grandparents. And it makes it a a home-like setting. And like I say, each guest lives until they die. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important that that people could learn, just learn that simple thing, that it's not always sad. And in those stories and conversations, there's lots and lots of laughter. Yes, yes. And um, and so uh, a day would be, is there volunteers that come and help um, them bathe? Is there volunteers that come and help them eat if they're unable to really sit up or move around? If they're unable to sit up or uh, we the volunteers would feed them in their rooms. But Sharon, right now we're in covid so we have no volunteers oh. in doing any direct care. And oh, that's yeah. been that way since March now, so it's very different. Wow. Um, the, the care aides, the nurses and the care aides are doing all of the personal care as well as feeding the guests. Uh, the food is prepared in the kitchen and then it's taken to each individual room rather than the guests and their family being able to come out. And there is restrictions on the uh, visitors, mm-hmm. so each guest can have one bedside visitor with them. Mm-hmm. Or if they're actively dying, they can have four family members of the same bubble. Okay. Yeah. And um, and so and so you, like myself, don't see it as negative, but a positive um, opportunity to spend. 
um, those last days or months with someone. And Absolutely, Sharon. Yeah. It is an absolute privilege mm-hmm. to to be able to spend time with people um, and learn about them and about their life. Mm-hmm. Um, our lives are enriched because we work here, I, without a doubt. I agree, um, yeah. And I know that there would be... Um, uh, support for the staff because you're such loving and giving people. Uh, you know, I was in the, the lab the, yesterday getting blood work done, and um, the stress that the staff were under was just, you could cut it with a knife. And the the unfortunate part is that with the COVID, things have changed. So you yeah. cannot drop in there anymore. And no. people are dropping in, and that, that poor front-end girl kept saying if you don't have an appointment you can't you'll have to come back in the morning and there was so much tension and so much stress because everybody was so angry and I thought to myself what how are those staff going to debrief at the end of a day it's it's very difficult yet it is so important Sharon that staff are able to debrief mm-hmm. uh, staff are able to look after one another mm-hmm. and I think we do a very good job of that here at, at hospice as far as the staff looking after one another mm-hmm. listening um, and if and if they need to we have plenty of, of rooms with spiritual care room and a staff room where staff can go in and debrief and all of that is very important and very healthy it is and you've got a good leader in in Donna uh, you yeah. know, I mean, Donna was in Calcutta, for heaven's sake. She's seen uh, the hardest things to look at, I think, in her life, and yet she's still full of love and compassion and a humor. You know, she didn't get burned out in Calcutta in that sun and all the stuff she had to do. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah. it's, it's really important that self-care is a priority to all of our staff. Yes. And when we're doing our um, hospice orientation palliative training, Self-care is also just as important for our volunteers because if you don't keep yourself um, looked after, you can't look after anyone else. Isn't that the truth? And, yeah, and my when I was uh, uh, leading uh, Phoenix House, I I had a benefit package that included counseling, and yeah. um, and I really encouraged the staff to go and debrief with a professional counselor because sometimes you you're working with the same person and you're both really broken hearted over what's um what is what's, happening yeah. to them and we have those same benefits here at hospice sharon mm-hmm. of of um of the counseling and we're certainly encouraged to to use it as well I I always felt that when I went to a counseling session, I was going to a university course (laughs) because I was learning about myself, but I was learning some tricks of the trade, you know, some of the questions you ask people. That's 22 years you've been there. Yes. Well, good on you. Do you get the volunteer of the year? (laughs) I'm actually staff. Oh, good. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, the, well, yeah, they don't want to let you get away after 22 years. <laughs> but I'm getting up there, Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is that when you're working in an environment like that, it, personal growth is part of the, the, the uh, benefit. Because Absolutely. you really need to look at your reaction to things and mm-hmm. and how you think about what you've just heard. And, uh, yeah, I find all of that. And so the reason why I'm wanting to talk to you and Faye is to, to really um, let people know what the flavor is in, in hospice and to, to maybe get people to come over. And I know that you have a lot of volunteers, but you can always use more. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, we can. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, tell me, then, Faye. <laughs> tell me why why you're there. I'm sorry. Tell me why you're there, Faye. Oh, um, well, you know what? My mom um, died in 2013, mm-hmm. and um, we had. We had had a tumultuous relationship for most of my life, mm-hmm. and I grieved for her very deeply. Um, and terribly, actually. Mm-hmm. And so um, when I um, took some training on grief, um, I just, it so radically changed my life. Yes. Karen, yes. That um, um, it, it was like I found my calling. It was like I found what I was born to do. Or was supposed to do. Oh, and I so, love that. Um, working here at the hospice house, um, is is actually a dream come true for me. I love grievers. I just love them, mm-hmm. and and so it's um it's an honor and it's hard, but mm-hmm. it's so peaceful mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and isn't it always wonderful to? I always said I'm uh, um, I went to the University of Life. And then I went to university. <laughs> and and these experiences are really personal um, growth times. And learning to grieve when we've been taught to keep a stiff upper lip all our lives and not to be a sissy. I mean, learning to yep. grieve is, um, it is a, it is a teaching because most of us don't know how to grieve. That's it, exactly. You know, how many of us heard, well, if you're going to cry, go to your room? Oh, yes. Or what about, if you if you don't quit crying, I'm going to give you something to cry about? Yep. Well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, um, and so, yes, it's, there's so many things out there about grief that are myths, yes. actually. Being and busy. Yes. Oh, uh, yes. alone. Yeah. Replace the loss. Yeah. Um, and so... Um, and you know, death, although the most difficult, is only one thing yes. that people grieve. And um, especially in this time of COVID, the isolation, the world is not what we use, um, what we knew it to be mm-hmm. even yesterday. That's right. And and so all of that is grief. And and um, you know, coming to terms with how we are feeling and becoming aware of how we're affected by COVID, mm-hmm. you know, is, is the first step, that's for sure. Yeah, it is. Well, you know what? I'm really, really happy that you and, and Catherine are there and um, with Donna leading. Uh, and yet I don't see Donna as, as like, uh, I see her as a circle. 
I don't see a pyramid. I see her as as uh, being part of a team, and uh, she uh, is Sharon. Yeah, yeah, and and I feel that about her. Uh, yeah. I have we, to. We do work as a team, and everyone helps the yeah. other one out. Yeah, um, we're very flexible and ready to step in and do our part to keep things moving smoothly. Yeah. yeah. And so I really admire you both for being there. And we love hospice and we support hospice in any way we can at CFISFM. And so people drop in and pick up your tickets and the 50-50 this Friday. If you want to get half of something, you better go in right now. And phone 563-2551 for further information. As originally heard on Tuesday afternoon's Senior Moments program here on 93.1 CFISFM, that was Sharon Hurd and Catherine and Faye from the Prince George Hospice Society. Back to wrap in a moment here on After 9.